Go ahead and grab a seat, church. Good to be with y'all. My name is Gavin, one of the pastors here. And uh, I'm so glad, like Chris said, that you did not let the great ice apocalypse of 2017 prevent you from coming and uh, worshiping God amidst the family of God here in the local church. So I, uh, I think we're going to make it through this storm. I don't know why we love uh, weather events so much in the state of Nebraska. Uh, it's just called January, people. It's just, it happens every year. But We like to get excited, but more excited about that, I'm excited about the Word of God this morning. If you would, open to to the Gospel of John. Gabe is ready to go. Uh, We're going to take a look at the next 16 verses in John's Gospel. Uh, Last week, we went through verse 18. We got 16 more to go this morning. And uh, this morning, John's, John's Gospel takes us to the man, John the Baptist. John the Baptist. As far as I know, John wasn't actually a Baptist. I think he attended a City Light Church, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, Maybe a more fitting name for our brother John would be John the Baptizer. John the Baptizer. John was an interesting duck. Uh, John was a, a cousin, a close relative of Jesus, and he was an interesting dude. His ministry was to wander around and tell people to quit sinning. It was a ministry of repentance. He had a a prophetic voice. Stop, turn, and uh, turn your attention to Jesus. So he would tell people to repent of their sins, and then he would dunk them in water. Now, the other Gospels give us a little bit more descriptive detail about John the baptizer. We learn that John was a Nazarite from birth. That means, among other things, that he, he pledged a vow... Uh, that, among other things, meant that he would never cut his hair and he would never shave his beard. Uh, When he came into an adult age and began his public ministry, he actually wandered out to the wilderness and began his ministry from there. So I want you to picture a dude with with a big old nappy fro, big beard, wandering around in the woods telling people to quit sinning. He's a, he's an odd duck. Uh, Matthew additionally tells us his clothing was made out of camel hair, and he had a big leather sash uh, around his midsection, tying that together. Yes, John the Baptizer was the first ever hipster in the history of the world. Uh, Our friends at City Light, Benson, and kind of the second row here, all of our hipsters think that they're they're so fashion-forward, avant-garde, cutting-edge. John the Baptizer was way ahead of you. He was... uh, he was lumbersexual long before that was a thing, okay? He, he kept it fresh. He, he looked good. Furthermore, the Gospels say uh, that our lumbersexual hipster friend, John the Baptizer, had an interesting diet. He ate only bugs and honey. So picture the dude, ironic clothing, big belt, big beard, grasshopper stuck in the beard. He's got pure sugar running through his veins, only honey. He's like Chris Haruska, uh, looking like a homeless man. He's got all this energy, and he's telling people to repent of their sins, and he dunks them in water. You might call the man John the Baptizer a little bit eccentric, okay? Uh, he's a funny character. He's an odd duck. You meet him, he's got a big personality. You remember John the Baptizer. Honey, that guy was weird. He had grasshoppers stuck in his teeth and in his beard, and his breath smelled like honey, and he told me to quit sinning. That's John the Baptizer. Uh, he was a dude that you remembered. And yet for all of his oddities, Jesus, all of John's oddities, Jesus comes along in Matthew eleven eleven. He says, John the baptizer is the greatest man ever born of a woman. How about that for an accolade? He's got some weird stuff, but Jesus didn't say that about anybody else. You want to talk about an award, you've got God incarnate, Jesus Christ, and he says, yeah, he's the best man that a woman ever gave birth to. 
Now, I've won some awards. In high school, I got a trophy for talking good. Yeah, I gave a nice speech and got a trophy. If you were to wander the halls of Waverly High School, you would find my picture on the wall. A lot more acne, a lot less beard. And it said, he talks good. That was my trophy. I won accounting student of the year at UNO, a state school in the middle of Nebraska that no one's ever heard about. And, uh, you know, I've, I've, done, I've done a few things. John the Baptist, John the Baptizer, what's his award? Greatest man ever born, awarded by God. Okay? So... When we look at this odd dude, and we've got 16 verses, it's easy to get caught up in his eccentricity and all these things, but I think, church, we need to dial in. When Jesus himself says, this is the greatest man ever born of a woman, we ought to dial in and go, what makes a man such a man? In fact, look at the way that our text starts this morning. Look at our scripture in verse 19. The very first words say this. It says, and this is the testimony of John. And so this morning, we're going to get to see the testimony of the man that Jesus said is the greatest man ever born of a woman. And City Light, here's what we're going to see. The testimony of John, the thing that made this eccentric man the greatest man ever born of a woman, was that John knew his position and John knew his mission. He never got those switched up. He never miscalculated those. He always knew his position and he always knew his mission. John was a servant of God. Never got that confused. He never elevated himself to a position beyond God's humble servant. And he was on a mission to tell everybody about Jesus. And that's the greatest man to ever live, Jesus says. City Light, I want us to be a people that know and understand our position and that know and understand our mission, that never get those things mixed up. When we miss either one, we've missed the point. And this week, as I've studied The life of John the baptizer in preparation to preach this word this morning. I have prayed, God, would you shape us to be more like John? John's not our hero. He's not the one we look to, but he models for us what it looks like to love and serve our hero, Jesus Christ, better than any man in human history. And so as we take a look at the testimony of John the baptizer this morning, I want you to consider, what will your testimony be? If a Bible verse like 19a, John 19a, was written about you, and this is the testimony of Steve, and this is the testimony of Mark, if this is the testimony of Sarah, what would the second half of that sentence be? What will our testimony be? The world will tell all of us, listen, you need to make a name for yourself, you need to make your name great, you need to rise uh, on the ladder of power, money, and pleasure, but John is going to show us something very different. He's going to show us that greatness doesn't come from climbing the proverbial ladder or making the team or becoming a somebody. It's not about becoming a somebody. He's going to show us that greatness comes in a posture of humility and servanthood, to posture ourselves low and to exalt Jesus Christ and make him known. That is what made the greatest man ever to live the greatest man ever to live. And I want that to be my testimony, Gavin Johnson. When I'm dead and gone, people say, tell me about Gavin. He was a humble servant, made much of Jesus. I want that to be your testimony. I want that to be the legacy of our church. Humble people, low in position, exalting Jesus Christ. Exalting Jesus Christ. And so let's get into our text this morning. If you found your way there in your Bible, John chapter 1. We're going to break it down in two sections. Uh, Grace, great job reading for us this morning. Uh, John the writer gives it to us in two days. And the first day is all about Jesus or John's uh, posture, John's position. Second day is all about John's mission, the message that he came to give. And so we're going to break it down in day one, day two. And so day one is point one. That's John's position. Write down this, the messenger, a nobody telling everybody about somebody. 
a nobody telling everybody about somebody. Here we go, verse 19, verse 19. It says, and this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? Real quick, here's what's going on. John has launched his ministry and the crowds are growing. He's starting to become a big deal. Lots of people are journeying journeying out into the wilderness to see what John's got going on. He's a trending topic on Twitter at this point. It was hashtag bearded hipster tells everyone to repent. Everyone's coming. He's the hippest ministry in town. Uh, people are, are uh, coming. He's making waves. Stuff's blowing up. He's a big deal. And so the religious and political leaders, being the insecure people that they are, come out to investigate. Well, who's this guy? What's with the crowds? What's going on here? And so they ask him, well, John, who are you? So let's see how he answers. Verse 20 says he confessed, and he did not deny but confess, I'm not the Christ. So he starts off by telling him, well, I'll tell you who I'm not, and that's the Christ. Now, real quick, Christ was not Jesus' last name. Did you know that? (laughs) Christ actually literally means anointed one or appointed one. God's Messiah. And so these folks, being Old Testament scholars, would have known their Bibles well, known that there was forthcoming a great Messiah, that he would be the Christ, the anointed one, and the appointed one to come and save God's people from their sin. And John says, well, I'll tell you who I'm not. It's not him. I know there's crowds. I know there's attention, uh, attention on me, but don't be confused. I'm not the Christ. Definitely not him. He goes on in verse 21. And they asked him, well, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. So, again, answers only in the negative. Uh, They start with some other Old Testament characters that would have been prophesied and foretold. The first one is Elijah. Remember, Elijah was a prophet of God in 2 Kings in chapter 2. Elijah, after his ministry, was taken directly up into heaven. He never died in a physical body, uh, but was just beamed up like Scotty, taken directly up into heaven. And in the Old Testament, actually, the very last verse of your Old Testament says that Elijah would return before the day of our Lord. So they're asking him, well... Are you Elijah? He says, nope. Quick side note, Jesus later in the Gospels actually affirms, no, he was the one that the Old Testament was talking about. He came in the power and the spirit of Elijah, ushering in uh, my kingship. Uh, We think, however, and scholars agree at this point, John A doesn't really fully understand the extent of his ministry, or B, he's downplaying himself in this moment. Listen, I'm no big deal. You Elijah? No, 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 no. Additionally, they say, are you the prophet? They're referring to a verse in Deuteronomy chapter 18 where it says, well, another great prophet's going to come in the spirit of Moses, and he will be like him. He says, no, 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 I'm not a prophet. I'm not the Christ. I'm not Elijah. I'm not the prophet. I'm not a big deal. Not a big deal. Not about me. So the religious and political leaders uh, don't really like his answers because he's not answering their question, and they don't find him helpful. So they go on. Verse 22, they say to him, well, who are you? Listen, we need to give an answer. It doesn't say, listen, I added that. i got to be careful. Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. I love this. We're four verses into this interrogation and probing. Do you notice what John hasn't even said yet? His name. <laughs> Who are you? What are you doing? Well, I'm not the Christ, not Elijah, not the prophet, not a big deal, right? He had every reason to say, well, my name is John. My my old man is Zechariah. He's a 
He's a priest in the temple. You might have met him. My mama, her name was Elizabeth. She was one of the oldest women to ever give birth to a baby. Yes, I am a miracle child. I'm a prophet in the wilderness. Things are going well, and I'm a big deal. Here's my card. You can view my resources at www.bigjohntheprophet.com. Hashtag Elijah back at it, right? You can check out my podcast. Here's some resources, and here's my brand, and here's my thing. None of that, none of that, none of that, none of that. So listen, not about me. Not a big deal. I'm not even going to tell you what I got going on. They finally say, well, tell us something. What are you doing? He quotes Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3. I am a voice crying out as one in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. What an answer. Let me unpack that. Remember just a few verses earlier in John chapter 1. What did it say that Jesus is? He's the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14, and the Word became flesh. Jesus is the Word. What does John say he is? I'm just the voice. Jesus is the Word. I'm the voice. He's the truth. I'm just a tool. He's the substance. I'm just the mouthpiece by which his message is coming into the world in this point. He says, listen, he's the Word. I'm the voice. I'm a nobody. I'm just making noise. He's the big deal. Additionally, he is the voice that is declaring, make straight the way of the Lord. Uh, that was uh, an Old Testament image that the original audience would have been very familiar with. In ancient times, when a king would journey to a distant land, uh, his staff would send out in front of him an excavation crew. And if there are steep valleys that are dangerous and difficult to pass, that excavating crew would fill it in. If there were windy roads that would cause nausea and make things difficult, they would straighten the road. If there were big mountains that were difficult to climb over, they would level that mountain. They would make way the path so that the king could come into his destination without distraction and get to his destination safely. John's saying, that's what I am. Listen, I'm nothing special. I'm the dirt crew out ahead of the king. Hard hat on, shovel in my hand. I'm a servant. I'm making straight the path to the Lord. I'm nobody. So the probers say, well, okay, listen, if you're no big deal, then why are you baptizing? They say, if you're not Elijah, if you're not the prophet, what's with this baptism thing? He goes on in verse 26 to say this, verse 26 and 7. It says, John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you, Jesus is at the scene, stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, because Jesus was born after John the Baptist, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. The lowest of all tasks that you could relegate to a slave or a servant was was to untie the thongs of a sandal and wash the manure from someone's feet. Remember at the time, people didn't journey by airplane and train and car, bikes, hipsters. Uh, They traveled by what? Animals. And so the animals, uh, the camels and the donkeys and the horses, what do they leave behind? Exhaust, right? So as you're out on a long journey, your feet are going to be filled with feces and manure. And you come home, the lowest of all tasks would be the slave who would come, untie your sandal, and wash the manure from your feet. John says, listen, there's another one. I know you guys are asking me a lot of questions. But there's one who is coming after me. The lowest of all menial tasks I am not worthy to accomplish for this man. He is so much greater than... Then I. I'm not unworthy to untie his shoes. Look at John's posture. How do you not love this man? The crowds are growing, the ministry's exploding, the attention's coming. Got big hair and a big beard and a big belt, and everyone's looking on. He's got a big personality and a big ministry, and 
a big social network and big opportunities. And the question is what? Is he going to get a big ego? That's the question. He's got the biggest thing going on. But what does he do? Deflect honor, deflect glory, deflect the attention, deflect the praise to whom? Jesus. Jesus, not about me. I'm going to be used by God, but I'm not God. I'm going to point you to the Savior, but I'm not the Savior. What does he say? He says, listen, I'm just a nobody trying to tell everybody about a someone. That's it. I'm the dirt crew out ahead of the king. It's all about Jesus. Jesus says, John the Baptist was the greatest man to ever live. Greatest man ever born of a woman. John knew his position. You know, one of the most freeing things that we can ever figure out about ourselves is that we're not that big of a deal. I mean, for real. That's one of the best things you can ever learn about yourself because the pressure just comes off when you realize, you know what, I'm not that big of a deal. In fact, I want you to practice that freedom. Turn to your neighbor right now and tell them, I'm not that big of a deal. Now turn to your other neighbor say, you're definitely not a big deal. All right? I'm not a big deal. You're not a big deal. Doesn't that feel great? I got nothing to prove. That's what John had figured out right here. Look at John. Look at John. Look at John. He is free from having to be the guy at dinner that dominates the conversation and convince everybody he's a somebody. What a freeing thing. John is not the dude who is carefully crafting every Facebook post so as to garner a lot of likes and attention. John is not the guy who's just waiting around, waiting for people to notice how dedicated and committed and awesome and talented and courageous that he is. He's not out to make a name for himself. He's preparing the name for Jesus that he would be a big deal. He's the biggest thing going on in all of ministry and all of the land. He doesn't want any credit. I've learned that, that one of the greatest tests in our lives are not only our trials, but oftentimes in our triumphs. How do we respond when things are going really well? Our trials are one uh, temptation, one opportunity to test us, but I think maybe the greater test is how do, we, how do we respond when things go well? John models this for us. He doesn't forget his position. You know, in every situation, every story that we tell, we're always going to make a big deal about somebody or someone. The question is, will it be us or will it be Jesus, Right? You can have two people tell the exact same story, and yet that very end is going to spin it in one direction or another. The glory will go to the person, or the glory will go to Jesus. Just think about it. The person says, my kids got into a great college. They're leading a Bible study on campus. You know, we were just sure to take them to church every uh, week and invest in their spiritual walk and, and do their homework with them, and they're really doing great. Or... Yeah, my kids are in college doing a great thing, leading a Bible study on campus, and we are just so thankful that our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, has been kind to our children. He has heard the cry of our exhausted prayers at the end of night. He's been so good to, to overcome our own parenting shortfalls, and we just can't believe what Jesus has done in our kids' lives. Isn't Jesus amazing? Who's the hero? Jesus. I just got the job. I nailed that interview. Boom! Hashtag 2017. That's what's up. Or... I just got the job, and Jesus has been kind. I just can't believe God's provision and goodness in my life. Who's the hero? Who gets the glory? Or business is going really well, right? I've just tried really hard to, to hire and empower the right team. We've really positioned our, our, our products and services well, and I think we're going to just murder 2017 in the face. I mean, things are going great. Or the business is going well. Yeah, we work hard. We work really hard. But at the end of the day, you know what? God has been really kind to us. Isn't Jesus good? Isn't Jesus good to take care of us? That was John. 
saying, listen, I'm no big deal, but Jesus, he's everything. Church, would that be our posture? Isn't that foreign to this world? Doesn't that just sound funny? Isn't that the opposite of everything in pop media, social media, news media? It's the opposite of our world. Everyone says, make a name, build your fame. The Christian says, nah, not interested. Jesus' name, Jesus' fame. I am but the dirt crew out ahead of the king. Hard hat on, shovel in my hand, make way his path. As a church, would that be our posture? As a collective family, what's city lie? What's that mean? We're the dirt crew out ahead of Jesus. Hip, the place to be, got something going on, creative, nope, none of that. We love Jesus. Want the whole city to know Jesus is coming. Prepare the way of the king. Make straight the paths. We are a voice. Jesus is the word. We are but a voice. I want us to be a nobody trying to tell everybody about somebody. Amen? Amen. That's point one. John knew his position. He's a messenger. He's a nobody trying to tell everybody about a somebody. But what's his message? What's his mission? What's he out to declare? He spends 10 verses kind of downplaying himself. Not a big deal. Not the prophet. Not Elijah. And then what comes into view in verse 29 is his exaltation of Jesus. Now we see his mission. Now we see what he's all about. Here's point two, the message. Behold Jesus. Write that down. Behold Jesus. Behold Jesus. Look at verse 29. It says, The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said. After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. Jesus walks on the scene, and what does John yell? Look at him! Behold the Lamb of God! Behold literally means look, fix your eyes on, turn your attention to, fix your gaze on Jesus, all eyes off me, Look at Jesus. Behold Jesus. Now when he identifies Jesus as the Lamb of God, I want you to know John's original audiences, uh, his Jewish audience, in their minds came an avalanche of meaning. The Lamb of God? Immediately they would have thought to Genesis chapter 22, where Abraham took Isaac up to the altar to be sacrificed. The sweet little boy Isaac asked his dad, Daddy, I see the fire and I see the wood for the burnt offering, but where's the Lamb? What does Abraham say? God will provide the lamb for the burnt offering. And just before that critical moment, what does God do? He puts a ram in the thicket, the lamb of God. The lamb of God who would come and be sacrificed for Isaac's salvation. You see it? Immediately in their minds, they would have thought about the Passover lamb from Exodus, wherein the wrath of God is coming. The plague of death is coming. And the faithful families would sacrifice a lamb and they would put the blood of the lamb over the doorposts and the wrath of God would pass over those houses. Behold the lamb of God, the one who would shed blood that the wrath of God might pass over. They would have thought about the sacrificial ram from Isaiah 53. What does it say? God has laid on him the iniquities of us all. He is like a lamb that is going off to the slaughter. They would have thought about the daily temple sacrifices twice a day, in the morning and in the evening, and the lamb would be slain and blood would be shed for the forgiveness of sins, the atonement of sins. And these people would have realized in this moment that all of these stories and this whole sacrificial system were but signals to and symbolic of this moment, the ultimate lamb of God who had come to take away the sins of the world. Behold the lamb of God. 
they would have thought, wow, this is incredible news. Why does, the Lamb God to t- why does the Lamb of God come to take away sins? As a sinner, I want you to know this is good news for me. Okay? I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. I have sinned. We have sinned. We do sin. We have sin natures. And so we are sinners by birth and by nature. We are sinners by uh, will. We do and have and will commit sins. We commit sins of commission. We do things that we ought not to do. We do sins of omission, not doing the very good things that we ought to do. And we have a sin problem because God is a holy God, and he cannot look at our sin and not punish it because he is good and he is just and he is righteous. And so when it says that Jesus came to take away our sins, that's incredibly good news. The theological term is expiation, the removal, to expiate our sin, to take it off of us and onto the Lamb. It's incredible news. Jesus, John is saying, is our ram. We are the one who ought to be sacrificed and that Jesus is the ram in the thicket. He goes to the altar so that we can have life. Jesus is our Passover lamb. His blood was spilled so that his blood over us makes the wrath of God pass over us that we might have life, that we might come into the promised land. Jesus is our Sacrificial lamb of Isaiah 53, on him, on Jesus, was laid the the iniquities of us all. Like a lamb that would go to the slaughter on the cross. He is the lamb of the temple, the one whose blood is shed for the forgiveness of our sins. And if you have received Jesus, Jesus has received your sins. Okay? Your sins have been removed. Expiation. That's the best word you've never heard before. Expiation. Sin. Remediation. The removal of your sins. And here's what that means. That means you don't need to hide your sin, pretend you don't have sin, minimize sin, as Chris talked about. You don't need to work your sin off like it's some sort of karmic debt. No, 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 no. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away our sin so that we might become children of God. Behold the Lamb. Furthermore, he says, who takes away the sin of the whole world. So not only is this good news personally, there's, there's, there's a cosmic element to Jesus' sin expiation, okay? What, what it's not saying is, is universalism, that Jesus came to forgive the sins of everyone on the earth. We already know from, from verse 12 that those who received him, he, became, uh, he gave the right to become children of God. So this is not some blanket universalism, but what John is doing is bringing to the mind, the Greek word is cosmos, He's bringing to mind a future reality wherein all the effects of sin in all creation will be removed and God will restore all of creation back to its original design and intent where sin will be no more. Where those who have received, who have received Jesus will walk with Jesus and be with Jesus and all they will experience is life and love with Jesus for all of eternity. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is one of the most pregnant statements in all of Scripture. And here's John declaring, behold the Lamb of God. He's saying, that's why I'm not a big deal. I get people wet. I got funny hair, and I tell them to quit sinning, and I dip them on water. But, but look at him, the sin-removing Savior of the world. Behold the Lamb of God. He's waited his whole life for this moment. Look at verse 32. John goes on. It says, and John bore witness. Said another way, he testified. I saw the Spirit descended or descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water, that's God, said to me, 
He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. Here John is referring to the time where he actually got to baptize the Lamb of God himself, Jesus Christ. And it says that the Spirit of God came down from God the Father and fell on Jesus and remained on Jesus. And other Gospels tell us that the God the Father spoke down and said, This is my Son, whom I love. Listen to him. John's saying, Listen, I, I came and got you wet, but, but Jesus brings a greater baptism. He's going to bring the Spirit of God, the very presence and power and person of God. He's going to put into the people of God that they might be made new, that their sins might be taken away. And what John is functionally doing here is he is handing the reins of his ministry to Jesus. There's a lot of speculation as to why Jesus was baptized. He has no sin. He doesn't need to repent. He doesn't need to convert from anything. There is no cleansing needed for him. He is God perfect righteousness. So why is he baptized? Well, uh, most theologians agree. You know, one, it, it kind of inaugurated the beginning of his public ministry. But number two, it was a way for Jesus to identify with John in his ministry. Because from this point on, John's ministry is going to dissipate as Jesus's takes off. And all of John's followers become Jesus's followers. And it becomes true that, that John was but a precursor. His ministry was but preparatory for the coming of Jesus, who now is going to take over. And John's followers become Jesus' followers, and John gladly bows out. He steps out of the spotlight. We start to hear about him less in all of scriptures, and he tells his followers, what? Look to Jesus. Behold Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the Lamb of God who has taken away the sins of the world. Later on, he would say, I must decrease. Jesus must what? Increase. City Light, this is the greatest man to ever live. And his testimony was not complex. It was not complicated. It was very simple. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Would that be our testimony? Would that be our testimony? A simple and real straightforward message. We're not a big deal, but man, Jesus is everything. Fix your eyes on Jesus. I'll close with this. We need to both receive this simple message and we need to declare the simple message more than anything else. That is our position and that is our mission. First, listen, church, we need to, we need to heed John's words. We need to be recipients of it. Are your eyes fixed on Jesus? Are you looking to Jesus? Are you trusting in Jesus? He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Are you looking at Jesus? Listen, the world will tell you to look somewhere, but it's not Jesus. Functionally, if I could be a little reductionistic, I think the world essentially tells us two places to look, and both are inward. One says, uh, look to religion. Religion says, do more, be more, give more, work harder, and God will approve of you when you've done enough and become enough. And it sounds pious and it sounds holy, but it's not. It's all about you. Fix your eyes on you, your moral behavior, what you can accomplish for God. And listen, this message is all about you. And what it does, it leaves you uptight, religious, a little arrogant, and absolutely exhausted. That's religion. That's what, what religion will do to you. The other place the world will tell you to look is to rebellion. There's a message that says, do whatever you want. Do what feels good. Get what you can. If the marriage is hard, get out. If the addiction feels good, feed it. You only live once. What's this message about? You, look inward to your desires. You, only you know what can make you happy. Look into yourself. 
And what this message of rebellion does, it leaves you empty, broken, and lonely in an entire trail of broken and fractured relationships in your wake. But look at John's message. It's very different. He's not saying, look to religion, look to rebellion. What does he say? Look at Jesus. Behold Jesus. It's not about you. Don't look at your goodness. Look at his goodness. Don't look at your rebellion and sins. Look at his forgiveness. Look to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Behold Jesus and cherish his grace and give your whole life to knowing him. Listen, Jesus has not come to kill your joy, but he has come to give you more joy than you'll find in any other place. He says in John 10.10, I have come that they may have life and have it to the fullest. The secret to life is not looking at religion or looking at rebellion, but fixing your eyes on Jesus. Life is found in no greater place than fixing your eyes on Jesus. And so we need to receive that message. Are you beholding Jesus? Are you looking to Jesus? Second, if I can just say it, I think that needs to be our ministry. We need not, not only receive that message, but repeat it everywhere we go. That that would be our mission, that would be our purpose, that that would be our message. I want us, I would love nothing more than for this church to be a one-trick pony and a one-note Johnny. For us to have one song and to sing it loud and proud. Behold Jesus! Exalt Jesus! Listen, isn't it true that your co-workers, friends, and family need a little bit more than better living tips from Dr. Phil and Oprah? They need the Lamb of God who has taken away their sins. They need good news. They're exhausted, lost, and lonely. They need the Lamb of God. Isn't it true that our city needs more than better policies and better programs and better politics? We need a spiritual revival. We need people to behold Jesus and see Jesus and cherish Jesus and be saved and transformed by Jesus. That's why we plant Jesus-exalting churches at an uncomfortable and unwise rate. (laughs) We are committed that this city will change in so much as our eyes are fixed on Jesus. And so we want to plant a church in every corner of our city to reach every community of our city. That we, like John the Baptist, might be the dirt crew, hard hat on, shoveling our hands, doing the heavy lifting. It's not sexy, it's not awesome, but we are here to prepare the way for the one who is to come. Jesus Christ, Jesus is coming, and Jesus is Lord. City of Omaha, prepare the way, he is coming. Would that be our message, amen? Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And we are but a voice in the desert. Oh God, uh, would you fix our gaze on you? Would we not only preach this passionately from a pulpit, but would it be the very testimony of our lives? Someday we will be dead and gone and people will look back and we will have a testimony, that which we are remembered for. God, I pray that what we do today would shape a testimony for tomorrow that would say we were a very simple people who were very straightforward, but who were very sincere about our love and mission for Jesus Christ. Oh God, would you fix our eyes on you? And God, would you use us in a ministry much like John the Baptist? Would we be a people uh, with a message that is bold to our community, to our family and friends, that Jesus is the only hope, that that is not cliche, that's the best news that they have ever heard, that they would fix their eyes on the Lamb of God who has come. Oh Lord, would you use us? Uh, Would you make your name and fame great? You are the Lamb of God. In Jesus' name. Amen.